Welcome to the Council of Institutional Investors podcast on corporate governance and financial regulation. I'm Jeff Mahoney, the General Counsel of CII. The purpose of these monthly podcast episodes is to update CII members and the general public on developments in corporate governance and related CII advocacy activities in connection with the administration's initiative to reform the U.S. financial regulatory system. This update covers the period from July 30th to August 30th. With Congress out on August recess, let's begin with activities at the Securities and Exchange Commission. On August 1st, CII and the Investment Company Institute jointly filed an amicus brief to the United States Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, urging the court to deny the stock exchange's petitions for review of the SEC's transaction fee pilot and to allow the pilot to proceed. The SEC launched the pilot in December to study the effects that transaction-based fees and rebates may have on order routing behavior, execution quality, and market quality more generally. The pilot is intended to address criticism over the maker-taker system of rebates. On February 15th, the stock exchanges asked the court to rule the pilot program unlawful. The exchanges also asked the SEC to stay the pilot, which the commission did on March 28th. Despite the stay, the exchanges are still required to continue to collect but not transmit pre-pilot data to be used for a baseline if and when the pilot program resumes. In the joint amicus brief, CII and ICI argue that the exchange's contention that the maker-taker model presents no problems worthy of investigation is simply false. The brief asserts that the maker-taker model harms investors in three ways. First, by creating conflicts of interest that can lead brokers to route investors' orders based on where the brokers will receive the highest rebates or incur the lowest fees rather than based on where investors will receive the best execution. Second, maker-taker model harms investors by increasing market complexity, by contributing to the proliferation of new trading venues and complex new order types. And finally, the maker-taker model harms investors by reducing price transparency by obscuring the true cost of trades. Our joint brief also states that, quote, the transaction fee pilot is a constructive and long overdue first step toward fixing an outdated and Byzantine pricing model that is badly in need of reform. It should be allowed to proceed, unquote. Our joint brief also refutes the exchange's argument that the commission decided to undertake the transaction fee pilot without meaningfully considering any of the alternative proposals they put forward. Our brief indicates that the SEC actually did provide a detailed explanation as to why existing data are no substitute for the information the commission will obtain from the pilot. Commission explained that existing data are not granular enough to thoroughly study conflicts of interest and will not enable researchers to look at the full picture of how a broker-dealer responds to fees because the data are aggregated quarterly, but the exchanges revise their fee schedules multiple times within a quarter. These and other limitations prompted the Commission to conclude that existing information is insufficient by itself to determine the impact of exchange transaction fees and rebates on broker-dealer order routing decisions. 
CII and ICI also note in our brief that the SEC said, aside from the issue of data, it specifically needs to conduct a pilot to determine whether fees and rebates drove order routing or vice versa, and that only a pilot would allow it to identify the causality necessary to robustly link fee and rebate effects on order routing. Finally, our brief refutes the exchange's contention that the SEC should allow companies to opt out of the pilot. The brief explains that permitting an opt-out, quote, threatens the pilot's ability to provide broad, useful lessons for the national market system, and the commission reasonably refused to adopt it without any evidence that it would not impair this core purpose, unquote. Also on August 1st, CI sent a letter to the SEC in response to the long-term stock exchange's proposed rule change to adopt policies that would require listed companies on the LTSE to develop and publish certain policies that the exchange believes will facilitate long-term focus and value creation. In our letter, CII reiterated its prior concerns about long-term stock exchanges' plans to establish listing standards that permit companies to have time-phased voting rights or other forms of dual-class stock structures with unequal voting rights. But the letter also expressed optimism about the long-term stock exchange new proposed policies to facilitate long-term focus and value creation because those policies are generally consistent with CII's membership-approved policies related to long-term performance, long-term incentive compensation, and business practices and corporate citizenship. The SEC issued an order approving the proposed rule change of the LTSE on August 23rd. The order noted that CII submitted the only comment letter in response to the proposal. On August 8th, the SEC voted to propose amendments to modernize the required descriptions of business legal proceedings, and risk factors in public companies' Regulation SK filings. Perhaps the most significant change in the proposed amendments is the addition of human capital as one of the topics to be disclosed to the extent it is material to a company. In 2016, the Commission issued a concept release on disclosure simplification and modernization and received public comments on that release, including from CII. In drafting these new proposed amendments, SEC staff considered the comments received, their experience with Regulation SK under the Division of Corporation Finance's Disclosure Review Program, and changes in the regulatory business landscape since the adoption of Regulation SK in 1977. In commenting on the release of the proposal, SEC Chairman Jay Clayton stated that, quote, the world economy and our markets have changed dramatically in the more than 30 years since the adoption of our rules for business disclosures by public companies. Today's proposal reflects these significant changes as well as the reality that there will be changes in the future, unquote. Under the proposed amendments, companies would take a principle-based approach to SK reporting on the descriptions of their business and of risk factors. As explained in the SEC press release accompanying the proposal, quote, such a flexible approach, as opposed to prescriptive requirements, may elicit more relevant disclosures about these items, unquote. The SEC explained that they opted for a more prescriptive approach to reporting on legal proceedings, quote, because that requirement depends less on the specific characteristics of the registrants, unquote. 
Under the SEC reporting on risk factors, the proposed amendment would include, as a disclosure topic, human capital resources, including any human capital measures or objectives that management focus on in managing the business to the extent such disclosures would be material to an understanding of the registrant's business. These could include, quote, measures or objectives that address the attraction, development, and retention of personnel, unquote. Looking at the disclosure of risk more generally, the proposed amendment would require summary risk factor disclosure. The risk factor section exceeds 15 pages. Change the disclosure standard from the most significant factors to the material factors and require risk factors to be organized under relevant headings. Commissioners Robert J. Jackson Jr. and Allison Heron-Lee issued a joint statement on August 27th expressing concern about the proposed rule. Specifically, the commissioners said they were worried about the shift toward a principle-based approach to disclosure in several areas, as well as the absence of a proposed disclosure related to climate risk. The proposal will have a 60-day comment period that ends on October 22nd, CII currently plans to submit a comment letter in response to the proposal. On August 12th, CII sent a letter to the SEC opposing changes to the Rule 14A8 no-action process. The letter expressed support for the current process in which the SEC staff determines whether a company's management may omit a shareholder proposal from the proxy statement. Potential changes expressed at the annual Rule 148 stakeholder meeting on June 21st and the CI staff in a meeting on July 12th would appear to allow SEC staff to pull back from the no-action process. While the SEC staff members might continue to provide written no-action letters in some cases, they could also elect either to not issue a written decision, provide no view on the matter, or to respond verbally. CI believes that the SEC no-action letters provide much-needed clarity, transparency, and efficiency that benefit both companies and shareholders. Additionally, a lack of publicly available written staff letters could lead to an increase in litigation. Depending on the nature of the changes, the shareholder proposal process could be damaged in the long term. Finally, our letter stated that without SEC direction, companies may include misguided proposals that would have been excluded under the current system or exclude worthy proposals that might freeze out shareholders. August 13th, the SEC announced that it would be meeting on August 21st to consider, one, new guidance for investment advisors on proxy voting, and two, a new interpretation of related guidance for proxy voting advice. In response to the announcement, CII issued a letter on August 15th to SEC Chair Clayton. That letter pointed out that at the SEC's November 15th public roundtable on the proxy process, none of the panelists, including those speaking on behalf of the corporate community, expressed support for implementing more regulation of proxy advisors. One of those panelists was former Senate Banking Committee Chair Phil Graham, who in testimony before the Senate Banking Committee subsequent to the November 15th public roundtable, he stated that his dealings with the proxy advisory firms have been good and that they listen. CI's August 15th letter also quotes T. Rowe Price's December letter to the SEC, in which it said it would have, quote, significant concerns with any regulatory changes that would sacrifice the objectivity of proxy advisor reports or introduce delays in the proxy voting process that, in an already compressed and intensely seasonal voting cycle, could result in missed voting deadlines.
Uh, CIA's letter also noted that the SEC's plans to issue the interpretation and guidance without notice and comment would appear to contradict a 2017 Treasury Department report recommendation that the SEC and CFTC make their rulemaking processes more transparent and avoid imposing substantive new requirements by interpretation or other guidance. At the SEC's August 21st meeting, by a vote of three to two, the commission approved the new guidance for investment advisors and proxy voting responsibilities and a new interpretation clarifying that the commission regards proxy voting advice as solicitation under the federal proxy rules. SEC Commissioner Allison Heron Lee voted against both the guidance and interpretation, in part because she concluded they should have been put out for comment and subjected to analysis for economic impact. Commissioner Robert J. Jackson Jr. also voted against both documents, citing in part concerns on barriers to entry for proxy advisory services. While we share Commissioner Lee and Jackson's concerns about the new existing guidance and interpretation, our larger concern is with the SEC's planned rulemaking regarding proxy advisors and exemptions from the solicitation rules. If the planned rulemaking makes the proxy advisory firm exemptions contingent on, say, company pre-review of reports or deference to company peer groups or other interference with methodologies, we would strongly oppose the proposal. Timing of the proposed rule change is not clear, but one observer said CII and its members should be prepared for the proposal to be issued before year-end. A proposed rule would, of course, be subject to notice and comment and an economic analysis, and we believe it will be critical for all interested investors to weigh in on the proposal when issued. On August 22nd, CII submitted a comment letter to the SEC and the Commodity Futures Trading Commission on a joint proposed rule that would reduce margin requirements for certain unhedged security futures positions from 20 to 15 percent and make certain related changes. Our letter indicated that we could not support the proposal as written because the underlying analysis was incomplete. More specifically, we believe the analysis failed to present any substantive basis for the proposal's potential benefit to investors, nor did the proposal consider any alternatives. Turning now to other corporate governance news, on August 7th, CII published a list of 159 directors who served on boards of U.S. public companies at the time they went public with dual-class share structures with unequal voting rights and no provisions to sunset those structures within a reasonable time period. Specifically, the Dual Class Enablers list focuses on directors at companies that made their initial public offerings in 2018 and 2019. It excludes directors of dual-class IPO companies that put in place time-based sunsets of seven years or less. The new list will enable investors who may want to engage with companies that have board members who choose to adopt a dual-class structure with unequal voting rights at other companies. CII Executive Director Ken Birch explained that, quote, some investors may choose to vote against directors at single-class companies who participated in pre-IPO board decisions to adopt dual-class equity structures without sunsets elsewhere, unquote. The list may also serve as a deterrent for directors of private companies that are considering whether or not to go public with an open-ended dual-class structure. Similarly, nominating committees at dual-class companies may take this list into account when there is a candidate who is responsible for adopting an open-ended dual-class structure upon IPO. 
On August 19th, the Business Roundtable published a new statement on the purpose of a corporation. Signed by 181 BRT members, the new statement indicates that the companies of signatory CEOs share a fundamental commitment to all of their stakeholders. The statement commits the CEOs to serve customers, employees, suppliers, communities, and shareholders, the latter described as providers of capital. BRT is an association of large company CEOs. The BRT portrayed the new statement as a rejection of its previous stated commitment to accountability to long-term shareholder value that was first articulated back in 1997. On the same day that the BRT issued their statement, CII responded with a public statement of its own. Our statement said in part, quote, Accountability to everyone means accountability to no one. BRT has articulated its new commitment to stakeholder governance, which actually resurrects an older policy view, while one, working to diminish shareholder rights, and two, proposing no new mechanisms to create board and management accountability to any other stakeholder group, unquote. Our statement was rooted in CII's membership-approved policies on corporate governance, more specifically Section 1.4 on accountability to shareholders and Section 1.6 on business practices and corporate citizenship. The BRT statement received a great deal of media coverage. The controversy surrounding the statement led the BRT on August 25th to provide a Q&A explaining their statement. The BRT Q&A attempts to clarify that the statement is not an effort to move toward stakeholder governance to avoid accountability, nor does it call for radical changes to corporate governance structures. Despite the lengthy explanation of what was was not intended by the statement, the BRT Q&A adds that the statement, quote, could not be clearer that companies need to generate long-term value for shareholders who provide the capital that allows companies to invest, grow, and innovate, unquote. That completes my corporate governance and financial regulatory update. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.